Good morning and welcome to the Black Pill Radio Show. I'm your host, Mr. Tyler, and today we have a wonderful topic. We are discussing education specific to black children. I have a panel of educators and people who work with children in an educational setting, and they're going to give us a little one, two, three on what's happening with our black children today. First, I'm going to have them introduce themselves and then we'll get right into it. So, Devin, can you introduce yourself, please? Um, I'm Davin Oglesby. I am a special education paraprofessional here in Nashville, Tennessee. I work with children who have um, specific learning abilities, such as autism, ADHD, ADD, and Down syndrome. I'm currently in graduate school to receive my special education certification, as well as a master's in special education from Lipscomb University. Excellent. Miss Tony, can you go next, please? Yes, my name is Tony Michelle Robinson, and I am a um, child care center owner here in the state of uh, Illinois, specifically in the south suburbs of Chicago. Um, I have a degree in early childhood education, which is what my specialty lies. Wonderful. And last but not least, Ms. Keisha, can you introduce yourself? Yes, uh, my name is Keisha Hill. I am a social studies educator at the high school level in the metro Atlanta area. I've been teaching social studies approximately uh, 10 years going on my 11th year. Wonderful. So I'm going to open up the first question for Tony. And that question is, what is the state of education for black children in America today? Um, well, it is my, well, first of all, I want to say thank you for having me um, on your show again, uh, Tyler. Good morning to everyone. Um, it, it is my opinion that the state of um, education for black children is at a huge disadvantage. Um, I can specifically talk in child in the areas of early childhood, um, we are not offered the same um, things because we're not funded the same. Um, Children in areas that are more um, privileged, such as our more suburban areas, they have more, you know, technology uh, devices that they're able to use in classroom settings and different things like that. So I believe that it's at a a disadvantage. Um, Even even, um, with high school and middle school, I have friends who have children in high school and middle school, and they do not receive the same benefits than some other children in other areas. So is it more about resources or are there some other things going on? I think it's more about, it's, it's, a, it's a variety of things, but I'm specifically talking about resources um, right now. But I think it's a lot of things play into, part, uh, play into uh, it, in my opinion. Um, the area that you live in, the crime, some children, um, their parents are not able to provide certain things at home. Therefore, they don't go to school. And it's, it's, a, it's a multiple things, but resources is one of the biggest. So, Keisha, what's your take on that? What's going on with uh, black children in America today when it comes to our education? Well, I definitely agree with her. Um, of course, you know, like school systems are based on the area in which the students live in. So, you know, you're going to get. Uh, better schools and better areas where people are, you know, have the the money to pay for home, homes and whatnot. So that definitely contributes to, as she was saying, the resources and even just the state of the school building. Period. You know, the facilities in which the students learn in the size of their classrooms. All of that is dependent upon the money that is around the children. So I definitely think that our children are at a major disadvantage when it comes to resources. And um, if we were to talk about home life, I think a lot of our students don't come to school with the prior knowledge that other students come to school with. And so it's a lot of things that we have to deal with in terms of uh, trying to edu- trying to get our kids on the same level as their peers in other areas. 
So, Davin, what, what's your take on this? Um, my take, and I can only really speak from the perspective of a black male in education, like coming into the field my first couple of years, I think one of the things that black children in education are lacking is visibility from black teachers in lower mm -hmm. grades. Um, for instance, I work in an elementary school, so I work with children from kindergarten through fourth grade, and I can count on one hand the amount of black teachers in my school specifically, as well as teachers that I used to sub substitute teach for who were also African-American within Nashville. So I think what we can start with is recruiting more black teachers into education from, you know, elementary through middle school. I know we have visibility at high schools, but in elementary and middle school, during those foundational years where they can see examples that aren't necessarily celebrities, but people that they can relate to. So I think if we start with recruiting black teachers who students of color can relate to, and you know who they can yeah. see influence from on a positive yeah. level that can be the basis of how we begin to bridge the gap between black children in education and their peers so i'm taking away three points here yeah. i'm looking at lack of resources i'm looking at poor home care and i'm looking at a need for more black educators in the classroom and just in administrative positions as well when it comes to working with our black children and mm -hmm. working within the school system um last our last broadcast, we talked about the miseducation of black children, and we went into a lot of the reasons why that is. And Bob Law, one of our guests, and a few of the other guests chimed in on white supremacy, white dominance, talking about that it's a plan, that it's designed that way to miseducate our kids. And that's why we have lack of resources. That's why we don't have a lot of black teachers in the classroom. And that's why we have issues at home, which are designed through laws and, and uh, ways to disenfranchise us that make it difficult in ways for parents to be involved in their children's life in the classroom. Do you guys see any correlation to that in terms of the issues that you guys raised? Absolutely. And then I just want to piggyback off of what the, the young man stated about um, the black presence in the classroom. I have a child that is in the fourth grade, and then I have one that is a sophomore in a in college and my fourth my fourth grader has never had a black teacher and he has never had a, a male teacher actually and i can count I, I believe that maybe my oldest son have had i don't recall any male teachers that he's had that were black and maybe about one or two black uh female teachers so i believe that that has a major impact on dealing with black children especially black males that never really see a black male teacher so, but yeah, to the miseducation piece that you just mentioned, I do definitely agree that that has a major uh, part in uh, the system and the way that it's set up for our black right. children. It just goes back um, to what I was saying in terms of, you know, if you look at the housing and the areas in which the schools were built, you know, that's just systemically yep. when we look back to how, you know, uh, districting works and the fact that students are put into districts or in, or in areas where they don't get the funding from the, the property taxes in order to better fund the schools and have better facilities. So that goes into the conversation, like you said, about white supremacy and just not understanding how this old and even still, you know, prevalent issue is impacting our students today. Davin, what's your take on that? Do you think there's a, a design, a plan from the dominant community, and they're the main reason why we are lagging in education? Yes. Um, now, specifically in terms of what it is, I can't say. But I do believe that 
if you have a marginalized underclass and you have, you know, a, a, um, a system put in place to keep African-Americans and, the, and those of color, you know, marginalized from society in terms of economic incline, then yes, you can say, okay, I'm going to put you know, all of my resources into affluent communities and I'm going to put all of the resources that those affluent communities don't want into poorer communities. And I'm going to have, you know, lower tests. I'm going to have lower test scores in certain areas. I'm going to have mm-hmm. low enrollment mm-hmm. in certain right. areas. I'm going to have, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to have uh, like the lunch program, like the breakfast and lunch program for after school and before school care. I'm not going to have those in certain areas. Mm-hmm. So that way I'm going to take, I'm going to take away parents' ability to get their kids to school before work and and inability to pick them up after school, after work. So I'm going to then force them to have to, you know, keep their kids out of school. And mm-hmm. one of the big, one of the big things that I've seen is the, like the school to prison pipeline that people talk about a lot starts mm-hmm. with me in, in elementary school, because if right. I can label, mm-hmm. if I can label a kid with a misbehavior, as they call it, um, you know, and I can, you know, put in, put a, put a put a system in place that spends them for two days here, three days here. They've already missed five days of work. They've already missed five days of work. So then I have to then tack on, you know, as a teacher, five more days of helping that student who's already missed, you know, a week of or a week of learning for, for instance, disrupting my class. So you missed one yeah. week, and then that week turns that week turns into two weeks. Those two weeks turn into right. a month. So you so you've now missed a month of school within say ten months, whereas your your peers hadn't missed any days. So now you have to play right. catch up the next grade level, because your teacher's not going to go back and help you, um, trying to make up those days and make up that work. But what I'm saying is, what we have to stop what we have to stop doing as educators, period, is stop, you know, excluding black students from having in class learning time. So if we can yeah, stop fine. pushing them outside of the classroom and develop more restorative justice practices as a whole, they wouldn't be so behind their peers when it comes to learning. That that for me is a big problem. Like I don't I don't like the fact that non teachers are not teachers that aren't black begin to label black students as troublemakers and problem mm-hmm. students and say I can't teach them because of X, Y, and Z that those students may not have any control over, such as home life or, right. you know, mental health, things that black students at a young age really have no control over. And mm-hmm. they don't have the resources in terms of their family to get help for those problems. So they come to class showing up with all sorts of issues that teachers a lot of times aren't equipped to deal with and don't want to deal with. So they push them aside and decide, I'm only going to work with this certain group. So that marginalizes them from the age of kindergarten through up. And then they begin to internalize yep. that label and say, okay, I am a troublemaker. I am this. I am right. that. So it's a, it's a big spot. It's a big spiral effect. And I hope that I'm sorry if I kind of went off on a tangent, but I hope that answers your question. It, it does. And it's an excellent answer because it's going to take me into the next area I want to go into, which is classroom practices. And you touched on that a little bit when mm-hmm. we talk about restorative justice, which is also part of discipline that I want to discuss a little later. But in terms of classroom practices, and I'll start with Tony, um, what are some of the classroom practices that you do in your school that may be unique to other schools, but that are specific to how we work with our black children? Um, well, 
you got to understand, and I hope everybody does, that I deal with, um, just like the gentleman said, I deal with the younger kids. He deals with children a little bit older than I do, but I deal with infant toddlers and preschool-age children. So um, my program is spiritually based. Um, I understand that a lot of schools uh, nowadays, they have taken spirituality completely out of out of school, but because I run my own shows, if you will, mm-hmm. I can implement that. So I, um, we teach our kids affirmations. That's very important to me. Um, we have prayer with our children, and all of our parents who um, – register their children into our program are aware that this is a spiritually spiritually based program and this is what we offer um we may not be the perfect fit for everyone but this is the program that we run and so we try to get because i think that's foundation you know a lot of times that's missing from school it's missing from home we can't talk about it at work and that may be fine but for my children for my babies that's a that's the things that i implement and i you know want to encourage them to pray. And I know this may be off of, you know, st- structured classroom times in, in schools and in high schools, but this is how, this is what I feel is important to implement in our curriculum. Okay, so you think bringing spirituality and prayer into the schools will change um, some things in terms of learning when it comes to our black children? I don't think that it would change some things in terms, uh, I don't think that it would just um, change some things in terms of learning, but I think that it would definitely change some things in, in the way that the children um, are being treated by the people. Because this is this is the thing, and, and the young man just said something It was very uh, important. Um, I'm dealing with a situation personally with my child. Um, he was just given an IEP for some de- delays that he had. And, you know, he's frustrated and um, because of some lessons that they're trying to teach him in school. But when I instill with him that positivity and that motivation and let him know that you don't have to get frustrated, you can do whatever it is that they're saying that you can't do, he goes into it with a better attitude because it is my experience just by dealing with children that when they don't get this certain type of, uh, and I'm calling it spirituality, and it, and it could be called something else, but they don't get the, um, they're not affirmed, then they go into school with, behavior problems and you know because they're already labeled you know what i'm saying i deal with a lot of children i mean you may, you guys may deal with the children with adhd and you know autism in grammar school and high school but i get them when they're young mm-hmm. so they start off with having this disadvantage of not having um they're not confident in themselves so i try to teach them confidence and different things like that so they can prepare them for the next level of grammar school and high school so not just that the spirituality will help them to learn better educationally but just as a whole person and i think that plays a big part of it okay keisha throwing the same question let me Mm -hmm. let me throw this question to keisha um classroom practices um what are you doing in your classroom that may be unique or different as an approach to teaching black children? I think with me, it's very important that I establish a relationship. Um, I, you know, tell my students on day one that I'm a human being, that, you know, I'm not just a teacher. I don't want them to think that I'm someone that they Mm -hmm. cannot come to um, about, you know, their personal issues. They have real life situations. And I think a lot of times people just teach them like they're a number or they're not a human being. So if they know that I'm relatable, that I'm here for them, because a lot of students do come to the classroom without that structure at home. They don't have anyone 
to talk to at home. So I'm very personable with my students. I'm very personal with my students. They know a lot about my personal life, you know, on a professional level, but also like, you know, they know I have a dog. They know where, you know, what I drive. They know, you know, they, they know how I was as a high school student too. And so mm-hmm. for me, I think a lot of times teachers don't try to build that relationship. You know, they they can be too professional and this is not this, the community in which we serve. We are servants to these young adults. So if they feel like they can't, mm-hmm come to you about something that's not an A or a B or whatnot, you know, sometimes they will act out because of that, because this person doesn't know me. She doesn't care about anything but my grades. So I just, you know, act out in that way. I also um, am very serious about, you know, trying trying to motivate my students. And like she said, uh, build confidence in my students. I know that at the end of the day, they don't care about this history class. I'm not crazy. I didn't care about my history class that much. But I tell them, you will learn to be tolerant. You will learn to be respectful of others. You will learn to be um, confident in yourself. You will learn, you know, just a lot of skills, you know, what what we call in the workplace, like soft skills, is very important that they learn that um, in my class. So, I, I, you know, I go off a lot from, you know, the the lesson plan in order to work in. I always say, you know, today's PSA is this, and we'll talk about, you know, credit or we'll talk about debt. Like, we'll talk about something that relates to their life so they know that it's bigger than the social studies class. And so by doing that, you know, I, I don't have a lot of disciplinary issues. I, I've been teaching. This is going into my 11th year, and I can count on one hand how many students I've written up because, you know, if I have an issue, I talk to them. You know, I teach 17-year-olds, it, woman to man, let's step by side, see what the issue is, because a lot of times it's bigger than that classroom. It has nothing to do with what was going on inside of my classroom. They have a lot of issues that I didn't have to deal with as a 17-year-old because I did have that support system at home. So if they know that they have it on campus, and I work with a dynamic group of uh, educators that are there for their students. So I think just by building that relationship, it changes a lot of things in terms of their discipline in school and on campus. So, Keisha, let me stay with you for a minute. I want to piggyback on the history thing that you mentioned, that some of the students are not interested in history. Why might that be? They're not interested in school, period. It's not just my class. I know a lot of students. I have students that have come to class or come to school solely to come to Miss Hill. It wasn't necessarily because they came to school because they wanted to learn the history. They came because they knew that they could have a comfortable, they could be very comfortable in my classroom. They have someone to talk to in my classroom. I give all my students an opportunity to speak. We have discussions. And so I know that it's bigger than the history and that they may not, like I said, social studies is not a lot of people's favorite subject at all. And um, I try to make it as interesting as possible. And I also try to help them to learn about themselves throughout the history class. Because, of course, as teachers, we are held to, as public school teachers, we are held to standards that they will be tested in at the end. So there are 25 things that I must hit on. But, of course, I'm going to let them know about, you know, I have students that have Native American background. We're going to talk about that. It's not in standard. I have a large Hispanic population. We're going to talk about it because it's not in the standard. And, of course, I serve a, a majority of my students are African American students. We are going to go into that. And I do answer the questions. We do talk about white privilege. We do talk about white supremacy. It's not a standard. But at the end of the day, you have to make it important to these kids' lives or they're not going to want to be in your class. So let me go to Davin. Same question for you. Um, classroom practices, and I know you mentioned restorative practices. Let's keep the restorative in terms of discipline. But in terms of, you know, what are you doing in your, in your classroom when you're working with the kids or assisting with the kids? Um, are there anything unique that you try to bring to the table that's different than the standard curriculum that you feel could help these black children? 
Um, again, because I work as an assistant in a special needs classroom, my role is a little bit different than both of these young ladies. Um, but what I am working to do currently is, since it is Black History Month, and I know a lot of my students who have, you know, cognitive abilities that aren't up to par with their peers, they may not be on the same level when it's, when it comes to understanding Black history. But what I do want to make them recognizable of is names and faces of important Black figures. So mm. there's a, um, I forget, I think it's Urban Intellectuals. They have like the Black History flashcards. They just did a volume one and volume two. Um, yes. I took a couple of those. I took a couple of those and just I made an activity for some of my lower level students to just match names and faces. So they they are recognizable of at a very young age. Okay, this name is Bob Marley, and this is his face. They may not know who Bob Marley is, but I want to at least introduce these figures to them because mm-hmm. a lot of my students are from, you know, other countries who may not be native to the USA. So they may not honestly know who Martin Luther King is, but through at least this activity, they can see his face and they can know his name. I feel if I just, if I, I feel like I start there, then they have a very early understanding of, okay, I at least know who this person is. And I know what he looks like. So I feel I can start there. Um, but in terms of restorative justice, my goal is just to keep you in the classroom. So whether it's going out into the hallway and talking for five minutes about what's going on in your day, not about learning, but what's going on with you and why you're upset, I can then get you back into the classroom to get done what you have to get done. Um, I don't want to keep you away from learning time because if you're not in the classroom, you're not learning. So that's how I feel. I can at least help you in that regard. So ladies, let's jump into the disciplinary issues that we may have in the classroom and how we handle them. Um, Davin mentioned restorative issues. He talked about taking a child out into the hallway, maybe having a few minute conversation with the child to figure some things out and then get that child back in the classroom versus sending the child to the office or to the dean where the disciplinary issues can go further in terms of write-ups and suspensions and that kind of thing. But if you don't have an assistant in the classroom, how do you do that when now you're taking time out of the other children's learning because you have to spend five minutes or so with a child? Um, I'll throw that to Keisha first, and you can kind of tell us how you handle it for your classroom. Well, it's definitely the same as he said. Um, You cannot embarrass our children um, because you will really have a problem on your hands. So if you do have a student that is, you know, acting out or whatnot, it's best that you separate them from the crowd and then, like you said, have that private conversation with them. Um, And, you know, that's a practice that I adopted from the very beginning because you have to remember that, like, like once again, you are a human being. If you were in a faculty meeting or a setting and someone called you out, then you feel the need that you have to have a rebuttal, like you have to say something back. Mm-hmm. So it's important that you separate our students. Um, and even in, in doing so, if I do that, you know, I have a student, you know, if it's notes, I have a student that's the clicker, and he or she will, you know, advance through the notes, advance through the PowerPoint so that everybody else in the classroom does have something to do or they are engaged in the lesson. Um, students love to teach. So if you step outside and be like, who wants to teach the class? Somebody will volunteer their services. So that's not a problem. It doesn't necessarily take away from the group. But if you do have a person that's acting out in the classroom and you don't remove them, then you, you take them away from the group's education anyway because now you're about to put on the show. You're about to see something seriously. Um, like I said, I've, I haven't had 
as many disciplinary problems as I know, you know, other teachers who have been teaching for a while because, once again, I create those relationships. I call parents uh, to let them know I do care about your student, um, but they have to care about their education in this classroom, and I'm not going to tolerate uh, any level of foolishness at all. And so once you have parents on your team, you know, I have parents be like, do whatever you have to do, Miss Hill. And that's really all I need to know. And, um, but, yeah, it's about, like I said, if they have a relationship with you and they know that you care about them, you just, you're just not going to have as many issues as some of your colleagues. You're not. Okay. Tony, how do you handle that? Discipline the children, and I know you work with young children, but I'm sure you have some children that may act out here and there. Um, how do you handle that in your in your environment? So, of course, discipline um, is very important at this age. And, you know, it's imperative to set boundaries uh, for children and, you know, be firm and explaining that there will be consequences, if you know, for things that they do that that uh, impact, you know, the other people around them or the teachers or what or what have you. So and they're they're essentially babies, if you will, you know, even even up to five, you know, in terms of trying to figure out how to discipline them and I'm mandated to discipline them in a certain way. So we use timeout. Um, we may not allow them to go out and play uh, for, you know, four or five minutes while the other kids are outside playing. And, you know, <clears throat> it's, it's different things like that. We can't get too uh, crazy with the discipline um, for the kids, for children that, that age. But, you know, we, we, we deny them certain things for a certain period of time. Um, that's about all we can really do at that at that age. And then we talk to them, you know. So I had a situation that happened on Friday, and the little girl was acting out. And the teacher and the teachers they become, you know, when there's a, a problematic child, um, you know, they become a, a, a tad bit frustrated as well. And so I found that when I went in the classroom and I really just spoke to the child, and, I, and she was a five year old, and I was just asking why it was something that could have just easily been resolved via conversation. So sometimes that's all it takes as well is just talking to them um, and explaining to them that there will be, it's going to be a problem if they don't readjust. So that's about all that, that I can do at that age group. So let's take it to the family. And I know Keisha just touched on it a little bit in terms of dealing with the parents and the parents kind of giving her the, the cosign, the okay to go ahead and do what you got to do. Um, how do you guys work with the parents when it comes to homework and discipline, or just in general, um, to get the kids to focus, learn more, because we know we're dealing with white supremacy, which we talked about. We're dealing with lack of resources. Um, sometimes there's some issues in the home, too, and dealing with the parents can be an issue. Mm -hmm. And we know we don't have a lot of teachers that look like us. So being that we don't have a lot of teachers mm -hmm. that look like us, the parents look like us, the community might look like us, and we might need to get them involved as well and play a role in the, uh, the higher right. education of our children. So how do you guys, and I'll start with Tony, incorporate all of that into your learning environment? Well, we try to offer um, like a parent night where parents can come in and they can be aware of what the children are doing. Oftentimes they're running in so quickly, dropping the kids off, um, you know, and again, I'm dealing with the younger kids, so they're crying and they and they're giving us, okay, well, they didn't eat, so please make sure you feed them and different things like that. So we try to have the parents become more involved. Um, that's difficult at times because a lot of my families are single, um, single mom families, 
Um, so they're working and they're focused on whatever it is they're focused on outside of the learning environment that's happening at the child care facility. And our older children, our four- and five-year-olds, we do give them homework. Sometimes they're the, they don't return it or they don't assist them with doing it. And as, as often as we try to get the parents engaged, it does start at home especially at this age, you know, it's the, and, and I always tell the parents that the learning starts at home first. You are their first teachers, you know, although we, they are with us the majority of the day you are there for, you have to be able to reinforce what it is that we're teaching them at home, whether it's <clears throat> educationally or just being courteous to tie in their shoes. Uh, if you're not reinforcing those things at home, it's impossible for us to get them to the level that they need to be. So we try to involve the parents more. We have um, family uh, family night, and, you know, we try to do th- different things in a community that would involve parents on the weekends at times. Um, but I, I just think the parent involvement will, will play a big part. Uh, but it's difficult. It's difficult for some parents to be able to do that. So, Keisha, how is it for you when you're working with the parents or people within the community and how they can all come together to help the children? Um, what are some of the practices that you institute? Well, honestly, with me, um, and this is just an observation, I feel like the older the students get, the harder it is to reach out for parents because they do feel like they're, you know, 17, 18-year-olds are self-sustaining. If you go to a middle school or elementary school event, it'll be full of parents and but if you go to a band concert at the high school level, a lot of times students are, are left without any support in the crowd. I've been a dance team coach, cheerleading coach um, throughout the years, and I've had performances and had to take kids home at the end of the performance because nobody came to see them, and they know they've been practicing all year for that. So for me, parent contact and parent relationships are very hit and miss. Um, for those that I do cultivate a relationship with, of course, that's volleyball coaching, um, you know, I have a better relationship with their students. I have a better relationship with just dealing with the child period because I have the support of the parent on my side. For those that don't, I have cultivated relationships with students outside of the parents. I've had parents that don't like me because their student has a stronger relationship with me versus them. So, you know, some parents don't want to hear their student every day talking about Miss Hill, Miss Hill, Miss Hill. And so that creates, you know, Sometimes I feel like I'm in competition with a lot of parents. So it's, it's very hit or miss with me, but I feel like if we do have that solid foundation with the parents, like you said, parents are the first teachers. I can tell you everything at school, and you can go home, and sometimes parents try to dismiss what they've learned within the classroom. And so you have to have that support. we got to be playing for the same team, and sometimes we're just not. And, um, of course, I'm not trying to take anyone's place as a parent, but sometimes at my level you have to play. I, I, I'm thinking at all levels you have to be teacher and parent and counselor. You have to be so much to the student yeah. because of the lack of support that they receive at home. And I, and I like the quote, being on the same team. That's very important. Um, I want to go right? to yeah. Gavin. I know you're working with children who have special needs, um, so it might be a little different, but getting the parents involved, what is that like for you? What have you experienced with that? Um, again, again I'm, only, I'm only an assistant in the classroom, so I don't, a lot, a lot of times I won't have direct contact with parents. However, what I've seen is it helps to have open communication um, because a lot mm-hmm. of my students have IEPs. They have a lot of changes when it comes to medication or home life that affects their, you know, behavior in school. So we need to be abreast of everything going on at home as it pertains to school life. Um, so what I like to see is parents who, you know, leave notes for their teachers or leave notes for their assistants to say, hey, he wasn't feeling well today or, 
you know, she had this going on this morning, so just be aware. Um, so for me, open communication is really important. And it also helps, as another one of the young ladies said, for parents to come to the parent nights, you know, in the open houses. So that way they're aware of what's going on in the classroom that can support what's going on at home. Um, so anything my students are going through in school, you know, we can also make them aware of at home so that those two things line up and there's no, I was left in the dark about this or that. Everyone is always on mm-hmm. the same page because, as, as you all said, we're all working together for these kids. So we all have to know what's going on and I'll be on one accord. So mm-hmm. to educators out there and future educators who are listening to this broadcast and who will listen to this broadcast when it's archived, um, this is some wonderful information that we are giving out to you as well as parents. Um, I think you should definitely support this broadcast and share it with other parents who have children in the school system because this is going to be very helpful. And the next thing I want to touch on, which you guys mentioned a couple of times, is the IEP, which is the new term for special education mm-hmm. um, and how that all works. Because I know Tony mentioned about a child um, that was tested for IEP. So I just want you guys to um, just educate me a little bit. When a teacher feels a child should be tested for IEP, the parents do not have to agree to test the child, right? The school can't test the child without the parents' knowledge. So I just want to know if I'm clear on that. And two, how do you guys handle students that you feel need to be tested for IEPs, and how do you work that with the parent when you have that discussion and in Davin's case, when you, you know, you're assisting, so you've seen other people maybe have that discussion or you had that discussion with a teacher about a kid maybe needing to be tested for IEP. How does that all go down? And I'm going to start with Keisha. Um, honestly, um, at the high school level, I can only speak to the experience that I have had. It doesn't happen. Most of my students come in with an IEP, those that have been um, deemed special education this is something that happened in the elementary or the middle school level. So um, I myself has, have never asked for a student to be placed in special education, and I do know it's a long, drawn-out process once it gets to that ninth grade level in order for that to happen. So very seldom does it happen at that, that level at all. Um, so honestly, so that, that's not my field of expertise. I do co-teach. I do teach classes um, that have a special education teacher along with it, especially if you have a, a large population of special education students in your classroom, you do uh, get a co-teacher in order to assist students, you know, because you do have different disabilities. So, I, like, I have a class where, you know, I, I can have a student that is on an IEP because they're ADHD and they have a problem with focusing, and I might need to print out notes for this student. But then I have students that are in my class that cannot read, and so um, their tests have to be read to them. So, it's very different at the high school level. So I can't speak to the system in terms of how it works and, and because we have to go through about four tiers before a student can be placed in special education. And it, it's a long process, and so it doesn't really happen because I teach juniors. It doesn't really happen. Most of my students have already been placed in it. All right, so I want to ask you a question again, Keisha, before I go to the others, and the others can mm-hmm. piggyback on this one too. ADHD. Is that real? Is that mm-hmm. scientifically proven, or is that just an opinion of a doctor? I mean, it depends on who you're talking to. Um, I definitely know that I have students that have real issues um, that cannot focus, that do have, you know, difficulties with with staying still. But I always say I have those same problems as well. With me, myself, I don't teach a class. I think sometimes as teachers we have 
unrealistic expectations for our students. If you think a child, my classes are block scheduling, so they're 90-minute courses. If you think a child or anybody is going to sit there for 90 minutes while you talk at them and have them to write down, record what it is that you're saying, or that they're going to sit there quietly for 90 minutes at a computer or with a worksheet or with a textbook, it's just not real life. So for me, it will be very easy to label somebody as having an attention uh, problem if they cannot stay still, not stay seated during that time. So for me, I mean, I'm moving around the classroom, you know, I sing, I rap, my students, we dance, we do whatever it is. If I see a lot of my students being lethargic or a lot of students have extra energy and they want to get out, let's walk around the campus. Let's take the classroom to the baseball field. So for me, I will say it depends on who you're talking to. And uh, for, like I said, I have an issue with I, you can't get my attention for about 10 seconds and it's, you know, squirrel. So I, I'm just like the student. So I have to walk around. We uh, implement different pedagogies within the classroom in order to get them up and moving all the time. So. Well, but we're having t- children sit for 90 minutes. They're going to get bored. So I don't think that has yeah, anything I, to do I'm with a... Get bored. I'm in the faculty for 20 minutes getting bored. So right. I, I mean, it's a lot. And I hear a baby in the background, so if we can kind of quiet the child down, please, because um, it's going to get picked up on the recording as well. But um, when we deal with the way you described it, Keisha, it just sounds like a child may be bored. A teacher may not be instituting a good lesson plan that the children are bored. We got to figure out other ways to get these children involved with learning um, instead of just having it like a lecture setting. Sometimes they may be a lecture, but maybe that's 10, 15 minutes. You know, that's definitely not going to go on for like a 15 minute, 60 minute period. Um, Tony, I know you're dealing with the little babies and they definitely... (laughs) Mm-hmm. have uh, attention and focusing issues because they're babies. So how do you mm-hmm. handle that? And when it comes to the IEP testing also, how do you diagnose that or or just recommend that for the kids if you do? And also how do you handle the so-called ADHD? Well, for me, of, of course, I, I cannot diagnose anything. I go off of milestones. So because I'm dealing with a lot of children around the same age, and this is the pivotal years where they should be reaching certain milestones, um, I just talk to parents on that level. So if I know a fourth, uh, a child that may be four or five or even three and they haven't reached a certain milestone, it's a very difficult conversation to have with the parent, first of all, to let them know that <clears throat> you see something in the child that they sh- more than likely should have developed by now because every child develops at a different age and we know that but more i'm talking about probability so more than likely they should have developed this certain skill so i would talk i I would mention it to them and i would just make suggestions and i would have to be very um uh, very sensitive to these uh suggestions that i have made so i've i have told a few parents about certain things that i've noticed with their child and i've had one uh, parent after a while she took my advice and got her child tested and he did have autism um my a very mild case of autism um a few other kids uh ADHD um and in terms of that i think there's more to uh, i have a family member who was diagnosed with having ADHD and so i i uh, studied it you know and i think it's more than just being bored you know, there are certain there's other things that they look for that could be like she said, it could just be 
according to the opinion of the person that you speak with. But I know just to put that out there, they do look for other things other than attention deficit and being bored. They look for things like um, forgetfulness. Uh, I had my nephew. He was like nine when he was diagnosed, and he would literally run to the walls, like be jumping, bouncing off the couches, and would run. So it wasn't about him being bored. That was just some other stuff that was that was going on. And and when he was finally tested, he's now in high school, and he'll have no problem with telling you. And he's learned coping mechanisms to to aid in his inability to focus and um, his inability to be organized and different things like that. So that's that. And the third question you asked me was, what was it? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know I went off on a tangent. Well, we was, no, you were fine. We were just talking about the IEP testing and ADHD. Um, did we believe if that's a uh, actual scientific medical term or is that just really an opinion of a doctor? Because I've, I've heard a lot of discussions about ADHD and how it's just somebody, you know, just making a diagnosis saying, yeah, I think the kid got it. And then a lot of times it's our children. And further than that, these kids are put on medication. um, And that's a really big problem in our community. That's one of the things I I was talking about, Tony. And Tony, also um, diet. You know, when we think about the diet and what we're feeding our kids, we think about the environment our kids in. We're thinking about them being bored and and how we're teaching the kids. All of that contributes to um, banging on the walls, bouncing around and all this stuff. I mean, it could be something going on upstairs, but a lot of times I don't think it is. I think the kid's just not engaged mm-hmm. properly, and we're misdiagnosing children. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, we're putting these kids on medication, and um, that's just damaging mm-hmm. them even more. So, I'm oh, gonna- yeah, I believe that as well. I do believe that a lot of our children, especially black children, especially black boys, are being misdi- being diagnosed with ADHD and ADD because it is my opinion that a lot of these white female teachers really don't know how to handle black rambunctious boys. So they look at them and they say, oh, well, Johnny, he has to have ADHD because they can't really manage him in the classroom setting like they can of maybe a little white girl or even a black girl I, li- I think a lot of our boys are uh, misdiagnosed with that so I, I can agree that there may be a lot more cases than not of children that are misdiagnosed and that goes back to what Davin had mentioned about having more black uh, teachers in the classroom specifically male black teachers in yes. the classroom so the children can see us learn from us and then when we talk about um, white supremacy and ways to discourage having black teachers in the classroom we're looking at those felonies you know, and those felonies are an issue um, in terms of getting financial aid for college and, and getting jobs that can work with children. Um, it becomes a problem. So I think it's all a plan. You know, it's all instituted and it starts from the bottom uh, when it comes to our children. So, David, I, w- I want to take this to you. Um, I know you're assisting in the classroom. So the, the IEP and ADHD may be something a little different from your perspective. If you want to touch on that, you can. But the next question I'm going to ask, which I'm going to throw to you first, is dealing with after school and weekends. Um, about the after school programs, they're very necessary to keep our kids off the street, get our kids involved in career path training, 
on a lot of career jobs and activities that they can be involved in. It also can give them another meal in the home. It provides safety in the home, gives parents an opportunity to work a few more hours to earn money for the home. Um, and we talk about uh, President uh, President Agent Orange who wants to cut back on educational funding for after schools and funding for evening programs and weekend programs, which is just going to cause more problems. And we know that's going to be specific to our neighborhood and our children. So if you can, just touch on all of that. Um, But bringing it back to the ADHD, you said, is that a real thing? For me, it is. Um, I've seen children who literally I can be having a conversation with them and there's a look in their eyes that tells me they're not cognitively with me and they're not cognitively present at the moment. But it's like you said, like she said, it's more so about more than just not being able to focus. It's honestly sometimes an inability to stay still. Like they, it looks to me as if they can't control it. Um, I'm still doing more research in terms of what can be done without medication. However, it is a very real thing for a lot of students, even students uh, that aren't black. Um, And in terms of IEPs, a lot of times it has to come down to parents agreeing to, you know, have their child tested for whatever milestones that they aren't hitting at an early age. So I agree with all of those points that were made on that. Um, in terms of cutting funding for after school programs, for me, it's a big deal because, again, as you mentioned, it's a lack of resources for young students. So things that they may be interested in in terms of basketball or Girl Scouts or even Boy Scouts in our communities, they aren't having the funding for. So they don't have an outlet for things that aren't academically things that aren't academically based. They don't have any extracurricular activities to just take their mind off of what's going on in their neighborhood and to get them involved into something positive. So we need to, you know, divest more of our time and our energy into finding programs within our own communities that are funded by our own people to allow our students to have something extracurricular outside of your school. And Tony, what is your take on that as well when it comes to after-school programs and weekend programs, even evening programs? I think that it's important that we keep these after-school programs. Um, In my area specifically, they have cut a lot of the after-school reading matter programs and even even the uh, sports, um, they cut a lot of the programs. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the budget cuts that are being made to um, the state that I live in, Illinois. And due to that budget, they have cut so many of our programs. And you see, especially at the high school age, and you see a lot of our high school children involved in way more um, <clears throat> things, crimes, and different things like that because they have nothing to do after school. Back when I was in high school, we had so we were at the school to five and six o'clock in the, in the evening, just involved, and and they don't really have that. So I think that that is something that should definitely uh, come back. Uh, you know, I think that it's a problem when those programs are cut out the way that they are. And Miss Keisha, yes, um, I totally. Agree. And because we have to realize that education isn't just always academic. Um, you know, you have to meet students where they are, and there are a lot of students that have outside interests. Everybody is not going to be a scholar. Everybody is not going to be 
an A honor roll student. So those are the students that are ex- actually excited about coming to school to go to class. You know, like I said, there are students that come to school for various reasons. Some students keep their grades up so that they can maintain their position on the basketball or the football team. And quite frankly, that's fine with me. Um, some students come to class so they can, you know, maintain what they need to do in order to be in the fashion club or to be, you know, in, on track, whatever it is. So I think it's very important that you stem all of their interests. And uh, I work at a very big high school, so we have a variety of different clubs. But once again, it just comes that problem, like you said, with the after school, the lack of after school programs. Um, that would allow parents that time to come pick up their student or that time to work or whatnot. I also have a lot of students that have to work as well. So um, it's very important that we have those before and after school activities for students, like I said, just to pique their interest. Uh, I think we also do a disservice. Just going back to our first question about some of the problems within the school systems for uh, children of color is the lack of vocational programming, too. We just assume that everybody is college-bound. And they're just yeah. not, you know, even when I look at my life, like, that wasn't something that I necessarily had to do. And we've eliminated vocational programming from uh, high school education, and that's a problem. Some students do want to, you know, sit in those art classes, be mechanics, and we're, we're missing these skills that our students could be learning in order to be, um, you know, better citizens within their community after high school. So, you know, if those after-school activities can provide that outlet for our students that we definitely need to implement more. And as he said, like we need to do a better job as community leaders and people within the community making programs for our students because to put all of the responsibility on the school is doing a lot as well. You know, there are a lot of people that own businesses that could be, uh, that could have our students to come as apprentice in their in their businesses as well. So, we need to start implementing more programs within the community and not just rest it solely on the school. So that's a good segue into my next question, which yeah. is the education bureaucracy. Like what changes would we want to see within the schools and within administration that can help better equip our children? Um, and I'll ask Tony that first, since you actually run a school program, like what changes would you like to make that might, you know, you might need state permission or city permission to actually do that? that um, here in the state of Illinois, they cut the um, requirements for um, under under uh, privileged and under um, poverty parents um, need that they need to meet to receive additional funding um, or receive funding or an assistance uh, to provide care for their children. So I think they need to. You have to be like way below minimum wage <clears throat> in order to qualify for assistance here in the state of Illinois. And, and, and it's, it's really, really sad. So I think that somehow, some way they need to increase the uh, requirement or at least get them back to where they were, not increase them, but get them back to where they were because the way they have it now, these parents are not qualifying. So you find a lot of um, grandmas and, aunties and uncles caring for children that probably should not be caring for those children. So they don't get that initial start and advantage that, you know, some children in our other areas and our other communities can afford to, to receive. So if I, so if I think I, it starts like it. So if, a, <clears throat> if a single mother of two works a minimum wage job, she wouldn't qualify for assistance for childcare. A single mother of two 
would need to make <clears throat> less than she needs to make less than about I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but she needs to make less than like fifteen hundred dollars a month in okay. order to qualify for service. Hmm. Okay. And when when the, when she does qualify, do they cover everything, or she still has to come out of pocket? They they still they still require her to pay a copayment. So she still, um, if she if she makes very close to that maximum amount, she'll still have to pay a monthly payment of four or five hundred dollars a month. Mm, that's that's tough. Plus rent, Whatever plus food. Whatever And so you couple that with rent or whatever her bills may be it's impossible to pay right mm. so that's definitely a change we need to make in the state of illinois and i'm sure it's affecting other states as well so miss keisha oh. let me let me come to you with that same question because we got five minutes left on the broadcast and i want to make sure everybody gets a chance when it comes to the education bureaucracy what's one change you would like to see made that you think will benefit our children um just uh, more people that are in positions to that have a desire to understand the children, understand their culture, and understand where they're coming from. There are a lot of uh, stereotypes that are placed upon our children, and it just comes from not understanding the child, not understanding where they're coming from, not understand. I mean, we even have conversations that that are small as the music that they listen to. You know, we, there's just a lot of judgment, and if you don't understand someone's culture, you don't understand. You know what a lot of our students deal with. You know, if you don't understand social and economic status of a lot of our kids, you know, passing judgment and having these stereotypes about the students, it is problematic, and that's why you can't relate to them. You can't teach someone when you don't even care about their life. You just can't. So we just need more people. Like he said, we need more visible uh, people of color in these classrooms, in these schools, because students don't feel like they can relate to administrators. Some of mm-hmm. the kids go to the office, they know they're about to get written up. They know they're about to get sent home. Because it's just a lack of understanding, like just people just not caring about who they are at the end of the day. So I would just like to be. So when we say class, more people, um, are we talking about the teachers or the administration or both? Period. Both. More people of color, period. I would like to see more uh, black private schools opened up, quite frankly. So, I mean, I think I think that's a, a, a big change like that would assist our students in could you I mean you have parents that don't reach out for that reason. They don't they feel like the administration, they feel like the teachers don't care about their students. So they're not coming to the open house. They're not coming to to talk to someone that they feel like doesn't care. So Devin, I want to come to you with that same question. Um how can we change some policies? Like list one policy you would like to see change that you think will benefit our black children. Um Honestly, I would think that more restorative justice position, like a restorative coach within elementary schools and middle schools or a dean of students for elementary schools and middle schools would help. Um, I think a lot of discipline issues within lower grades would be minimized if students had an outlet, you know, someone they could talk to and someone they could trust that had an unbiased opinion, um, someone that honestly would just listen to them and relate to them to kind of get those discipline issues down and kind of, you know, to a, to a lower level. So that way they would be able to go, you know, talk to, talk to the restorative coach, have that conversation, then go back to class um, and have that person be someone stern, but relatable. So I think that position, honestly, in a lot of schools would help 
because that way we could sort of minimize discipline issues for problem students. That thus minimizes the discipline issues within classrooms, which kind of changes the school culture as a whole for me. Um, I think it's just really important for students to have someone that honestly doesn't just see them as a number within the school system and someone that sees them as an actual person, a whole person, not just the issues they have at home or the issues they have with learning, but sees them as a whole human being with flaws and all. Yeah. Right, right. And if I add something really, really quick, I think also, and I I don't have this at my facility, but I know I experienced it with my oldest son, if we can have culture, um, sensitivity, and diversity training. Yeah. Because like like he said mm-hmm. initially, a lot of their, our teachers and administrators don't look like us. So they don't mm-hmm. understand they don't. the things that we understand. So mm-hmm. if we see in those areas, I think it would be very beneficial to the educational system mm-hmm. as a whole. And to be honest, right. it's not so much, I'm not even talking so much as just for students of color, but all students. You know, it makes a difference. Right. I've I've seen for all students to see black men walking around their schools. Exactly. Because they it's it's just a it's a change in the narrative as a whole. Not just for black students right. or white students, but just as a whole for all students, it makes a difference. I've seen right. it within my school. It makes a huge difference. It does. So guys, excellent discussion. Miss Tony, I want you to promote your business so people can send their children to your institution. 90 yes, um, seconds. The name of my facility is Children's First Learning Academy. Um, that's C-H-I-L-D-R-E-N, learning, L-E-A-R-N-I-N-G, academy, um, dot com. And you also can um, get the information off of my website, and that's TonyNichelle.com, T-O-N-I-E-N-E-S-H-E-L-L-E. Or you can follow my Instagram page at Tony. Excellent, guys. And I want to thank all 60 you. Sixty seconds. I want to thank all of you guys for being on the oh. panel, Devin, Tony, Keisha. Um, it was a great discussion. I think I'm going to have another one where we're going to talk about charter schools, private schools, and public schools, mm-hmm. and the differences, and just to clear up some mis- misconceptions about that. As always, we are live every first and third Sunday morning Eastern Time from 10 a.m. to 11 p.m. 11 a.m. of each month. Um, You guys can listen to the archive of the broadcast on iTunes, YouTube, Google Play, and Block Talk Radio. And as well, you can always go to the website, which is blackpillradio.com, and we'll have all the broadcasters, all the past broadcasts listed on the website. We also have a resource page listed on the website where each panelist who appeared on the show, we're going to have their contact information, their website, and their social media information so you guys can follow them. As always, tune in, spread the word, yeah. share. Peace, God bless, and we'll see you guys in two weeks.